0: Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogunia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September 18, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This presentation is is entitled Topical Discussion 2 because it is really a continuation of things that I had hoped to talk about, believe it or not, last week, and maybe now I can finish them. I must apologize that last Friday I ran out of time, and the servers that operate the Christiania Streams are pre-programmed by myself, of course, to cut back over to playing reruns at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time, that usually gives me about two and a quarter hours to complete a program, and we rarely use that much time. But last week I kept rambling on, and I did not even realize that I had spoken for so long. We, uh, we ran to, until almost 11 p.m., and the recording on the website is complete, if anyone wants to go back and hear the rest of our talk on Calvin. The people that listen on TalkShoe actually did get to hear the entire two and a half hours, but the people that listen on Genio, which is actually the vast majority of our listeners, didn't get to hear it all. Before proceeding, I would like to... Um, Thank our gracious host for a wonderful time in Southeast Pennsylvania last week, and also thank all of the brethren who showed up to fellowship with us while we were there. Speaking of um, Calvin, which we had discussed for, I, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes or an hour at the end of last week's program, I appreciate the excellent discussion on the matter which has continued in the Christogonia Forum since last week's program, and perhaps we can get back to the problems with Calvinism in the near future, since there are quite a few. For now, it shall suffice to repeat this. The predestination taught by Paul of Tarsus and the predestination of Calvin are not the same. We might hear the Word and imagine that they refer to the same thing. They certainly do not refer to the same thing. They are two different views of predestination. That of Paul was fully in line with the prophets of the Old Testament. And that of Calvin is absolutely contrary to the prophets of the Old Testament. Therefore, it serves us well to understand the letters of Paul, and we must reject Calvin as an antichrist. That's what he is, contrary to the words of our God. One of the funniest things that I heard recently was from someone who said that Trayvon Martin hoodies come in two colors, Michael Brown and Freddie Gray. It is almost as if the Jewish media picks even the names of those who they will promote as victims so that they can poke fun at the dumb sheep all the more as they are led to the slaughter. And with that, speaking of the media, I want to comment quickly on the case of the Kentucky court clerk, whose name I don't even have handy, that's how important it is to me, who is currently being abused for refusing to issue marriage licenses to sodomites. Often some of our readers or listeners imagine that we at Christogenia should comment on every little thing like this that happens that's put into the news. But that is not our purpose. We'll comment on this case because the Howard comment is certainly not going to be what most people think it may be. But if your pastor is relying on news and current events to fuel his sermons, he's really no better than the stand-up comic or the mainstream radio pundit who formulates his routines based on those same things. And they are all jokers because any fool can pick up a newspaper and formulate opinions. It's one thing to... um discuss certain political and social issues it's another thing to become simply a mechanism that responds to news stories like a like a radio talk show host talk show host i'm sorry it is true that sometimes i write on certain political or social issues. But when I do, it is only because I am trying to make a point which I think transcends particular issues. So I may use a particular issue as a vehicle for expressing the transcendental opinions. But I am not ever going to react to the so-called news as if it is news. Most of it is really not news. It's the same old crap happening for centuries, and it just gets recycled through different people in different ways. We do not seek to publish news, but we seek to find ways to provoke awakening to the reasons behind what is happening in the news amongst our white European kindred. I do not have any sympathy for the Kentucky court clerk. It's nice to see someone once in a while stand up for Christianity and Christian principles, but we're way beyond this. This court clerk is employed, basically, by the Babylonian mystery state. And therefore, the state is her master. The state, the governments of man, are a result of God's punishment of Israel and not of God's righteousness. Being employed by the state, her master is not Yahweh, our God. Her master is the state. She should have done her master's bidding and she would not have suffered to be punished. Nobody understands that situation better than I do, because I have been through it. If you work for the government for as long as they cut your paychecks, you have to do what the government wants you to do, because you are a servant of the state. We as Christians may not like the situation, but that is the reality which we have to deal with. We cannot fix any of these modern states. We can only pray that they are soon replaced, supplanted by the kingdom of our God. Another funny thing I heard recently was from a YouTube commentator who was stuck on stupid in many other ways, but he came up with this gem. He said that, Basically, I'm paraphrasing. He said that Americans are concerned about gay marriage. But in reality, America itself is in a gay marriage with Israel. The, or, or the, we know it's not true Israel, but that Palestinian Jewish state that calls itself by that name. And that is absolutely true. American, America is in a gay marriage with this political state in Palestine and actually in the people behind it. These same Judeo-Christians who claim to despise gay marriage should see in their Bibles how Yahweh really hates these Edomite bastards who are now called Jews and why and that God hates fags, but that Jews are the world's largest and most vocal promoters of faggotry. Tel Aviv is consistently the gayest city in the world. It's just crawling with sodomites. But the idiots blindly give their support to these same devils. In fact, homosexuality itself as Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 1, is a disease inflicted as a punishment from God for sin. Today, the Jew is the parasite that transmits that virus. If the court clerk really had a truly Christian conscience, she would have been enforcing Yahweh's law in all of her transactions, and not only in those transactions of her own choosing. You can't pick and choose which one of God's laws you want to uphold. We must ask this. Did she ever issue a marriage license to a so-called interracial couple? Did she ever process a state-ordered divorce decree or any order separating a man from his family, did she ever process an order-taking children from their parents? Did she ever help take a man's property and turn it over to usurers? Did she ever foreclose a mortgage to put a family out into the street or to take a home from a family because of delinquent taxes? It is certain that she has damn well done those things. Every court clerk is obliged to do those things every day in his country. And those things are also things which Yahweh our God would condemn, which are contrary to his law. Therefore, she may just as well have also issued the marriage certificates to the sodomites who demanded them. There is no difference neglecting Yahweh's law. One is liable for all of it. One cannot serve two masters. If someone is employed by the state, that person must do the things that the state requires and understand that vengeance and mercy belong to God. Christ had even healed the Roman centurion servant, and Christ had blessed Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He did not require them to forsake what they were previously bound to do by the state. We must understand that the governments of man are a punishment from God because our Israelite ancestors had rejected him until the time that he has ordained. That's not Judeo-Christianity. I know they teach elements of it because they do teach elements of Scripture. And it is not an excuse for wicked government. Rather, It is simple Christian understanding. It is exactly what is taught in 1 Samuel chapter 8, in Daniel chapters 2, 4, and 7, in Romans chapter 13, and in 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter, the Apostle summarized exactly what Paul had taught in Romans 13 where he said in that chapter, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. So government is a punishment from God. And Paul teaches that if you do well, the government won't punish you. The governments of man serve for the punishment of the people at the hands of an angry God. The Book of Nazar, the king of Babylon, was informed in Daniel chapter 2, and wheresoever the children of men dwell. The beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven has he given into thine hand, and has made thee ruler over them all. Until the fall of Mystery Babylon, it can only be asked who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him. And of course, to the Christian, the only answer is Christ. But that does not ensure that we can work for the beast, and follow the laws of Christ in our employment. We can't serve two masters. Rather, if the court clerk really wanted to uphold Yahweh's law, she would never have been a court clerk, and this would never have been a story. Rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, we simply cannot take a salary from Caesar without doing Caesar's will. Caesar is not going to let us get away with that. And that is the reality which all Christians must face. However, Christians must seek to please Christ in what they can control with what is within their own control, as we have examples of that in the Roman Centurion and in Zacchaeus, the tax collector. So if the Kentucky court clerk serves us in any regard at all, it is that we must understand that for Christians, There is no political solution, not even for court clerks. If you are a Roman centurion, or today that would perhaps be equivalent to a police lieutenant or to an army officer, you may one day have to shoot a white man in defense of government law. What are you going to do then? If you are a tax collector, you may have to exact money from a white man in order to satisfy government law. If you are a registered nurse, you may have to dispense pharmaceuticals odious to Christ but mandated by government health regulations, which are anything but healthy. If you are a teacher, you may have to give a course on evolution or so-called sex education, which is and which should be repulsive to Christians. None of these things are good, but we do not awaken to that until we come to realize our Christian identity, study the laws of our God, and we see that we are already held captive. We are still in captivity and held captive by an evil system. All of this should be very humbling to us once we come to that realization that we are still in captivity. For this, the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah, and I will bring the blind a way that they knew not I will lead them in paths that they have not known I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight and right now we're still dealing with those crooked things these things will I do unto them and not forsake them so we pray for deliverance from our captivity. And that leads us to the next thing that we have thus far failed to comment on and will now. The recent flood of immigrants from Syria, Sudan, Eritrea, or from wherever they are now being dragged into Europe or America. We saw news reports this morning of Syrians being brought into Louisville, Kentucky, and given houses. I saw one Syrian family with a house a hell of a lot nicer than the one I live in. It's not a double wide, right? There are Eritreans being planted in various places in the United States, such as the Ozark Mountains, by crypto-Jew Catholics, or at least by someone that sure as hell looked like a crypto-Jew Catholic running a Catholic charity in the Ozarks and making money and supporting his family and employing his family in managing these Eritreans and with the object objective to make them, quote-unquote, self-sufficient, as if that were ever possible. If they could possibly be self-sufficient, they would have stayed in Africa. But how should we respond to this when we have already been warning of this in the biblical context for many years? And in our Christian identity worldview, or Wealth and The Bible is not an entity which is separate from reality. Instead, the Bible is what defines our worldview and our reality. Seeing the world through the lens of the Bible, we truly understand what is happening. The Word of God is our only true way of looking at reality and the only means by which we may by which we may properly assess what is happening. White nationalists might call this genocide, but we know that our salvation draws near. So when I wrote a paper titled The Immigration Problem and Biblical Prophecy, which was over 10 years ago, none of my comments or positions change in relation to this problem as it exists today, 10 years later. Whether a discussion of these things uses Mexicans as an example, which I did in 2005, or whether it is Africans or Syrians is not an issue. In the prophecy of Joel, which concerns this same thing, we have canker worms and pommel worms. Yesterday, we were invaded by one, and now we are seeing the other. But the problem, the description, the reasons for it, the underlying causes are all still the same. There is no doubt. The more immigration we have, the greater our salvation shall be. And whether it be legal or illegal immigration is immaterial, absolutely immaterial, because all alien immigration into white lands is unlawful in the eyes of our God. Yet that too, is being allowed by him to happen for our punishment and for an ultimate display of his power, whether we like it or not. So it it, it it sickens us to see our kindred overrun by these aliens. But we must know that the Bible, the Word of God, prophesied that and prophesied our salvation, by which we should have encouragement. And if the Bible foresaw our being overrun with these aliens so accurately as it did once we understand the revelation, we should know that the promise of salvation is just as certain is the fact that we are being overrun with aliens and they're planting niggers in every neighborhood. Pretty soon, they'll regulate a nigger into every bedroom like the Bolsheviks did. You don't think it's possible? The Bolsheviks regulated housing to that same extent after the October Revolution. The people who listen to my biblical commentaries regularly are going to recognize much of what I'm about to present. I'm going to read from Ezekiel chapter 38. And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against God, the land of Magog the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus saith Yahweh God, I am behold, behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. It can be said that the Khazarian Jews call themselves Ashkenazi, but they are every bit as much mixed with Meshech and Tubal tribes which also dwelt in that same region of the old Khazar Empire, even though a lot of those people are also represented in the people that we know as Slavs, the Eastern Slavs. So, Meshach and Tubal are divided, but the Jews, they're running that program also. They are, no doubt, the chief prince of Meshek and Tubal. And I will turn thee back, and put hooks into thy jaws. And I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed, with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Domer and all his bands, the house of Togarma of the North Quarters and all his bands and many people with thee. And it can be demonstrated historically that these names of Genesis 10 nations, primarily Chepetites, no longer belong to Adamic peoples. But they do describe the partial parentage of the mixed races of the wider Arab world. And when I say Arab world, I don't mean Arabia. I mean the ancient world, which was race-mixed 2,000 years ago or longer. All of these nations of Southern. What we know today is the southern part of the Russian Federation and, and, and the entire Iranian world, um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, all of these nations can partially trace their lineage back to these tribes. These names are being used so that we recognize who our enemies are. All of these nations are part of that same Arab world, as I see it, which is the Muslim world, primarily, and all of the race-mixed nations that were formerly Adamic. This is the real old world of our people. Europe wasn't the old world. Europe is really the middle world. And the new world, part of the new world at the same time. So the the way to look at it, this is where we came from, and all those who, all those tribes who were left left behind, became race next. Here Yahweh says, and and let me say that we should understand, we should better understand, studying history, the satanic nature of the enemies of ourselves and our God, which are listed here. They are satanic because they are all bastards. They are not sons, even though some of their ancestors were sons of God. Here Yahweh says that he will put hooks into their jaws and bring them into the mountains of Israel. So it is with all certainty, if this is the will of Yahweh, that we do not have a political solution to this problem. Rather, it is for the glory of God that all of these aliens are being brought here against our will. But the average Judaized Christian is oblivious to the actual reality. On the other hand, the Jew devils who encourage all of this, even they themselves do not realize that they are playing into the hands of our God for their own destruction. And Ezekiel continues. Be thou prepared and prepare for thyself, thou, and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. After many days thou, meaning Gog, and all of these hordes, thou shalt be visited. In the later years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. And there's no doubt that these nations of Israel were brought forth out of the ancient nations and tribes of the Israelites and other Adamic people. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm, Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, and all thy bands, and many people with thee. Now this sounds like a military invasion, and that's the way it's depicted by the prophet. But we've already been invaded, and the invasion is ongoing. Thus saith Yahweh God, it shall also come to pass, that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, "'and thou shalt sink an evil sod, "'and thou shalt say, "'I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. "'I will go to them that are at rest, "'that dwell safely, "'all of them dwelling without walls, "'having neither bars nor gates, "'to take a spoil, "'and to take a prey, "'and to turn thine hand "'upon the desolate places "'that are now inhabited, "'and upon the people "'gathered out of the nations.' which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba and Dedan, more nations of the Arab world, and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold? to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil. And that's what they're doing, just not in the way that we envision a military army. But the effect is still the same. It's just a slower death. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog: thus saith Yahweh God, in that day, when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, north in relation to the children of Israel, and thou shalt come up against, or the ancient nation of Israel, I should say, and thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the later days, And I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. And no matter what you want to think of the African Pardoners, this is, and and they too are simply part of the army of the Jews. This is exactly what is happening today which we see described in a different way in Revelation chapter 20. And when a thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on a breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The thousand years when Satan was locked at the pit are the centuries of the medieval period when the Jews had no political power in Christendom. Now that the Jews had been loosed for 200 years, They have completely infiltrated and usurped our formerly Christian society. They are the Satan, which has the camp of the saints encompassed with these alien hordes. Sooner or later, white nationalists must learn that Christ is the only way, and on the other side, of the proverbial coin, Judeo-Christians must learn that Satan, America's gay marriage partner, is not so good after all. That gay marriage partner is described in Revelation chapter 18, the woman that joins herself to the beast. Returning to Ezekiel chapter 38, Thus saith Yahweh God, art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days, many years, that I would bring thee against them. So this is admittedly seeing many years into the future, and it's never been fulfilled until now. And it shall come to pass at the same time when God shall come against the land of Israel, saith Yahweh God. Then my fury shall come up in my face, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, saith Yahweh God. So that the fishes of the sea, I'm sorry I lost my place momentarily, so that the fishes of the sea, the fowls of the heaven, and the beasts of the field, and all creeping things that creep upon the earth, and all the men that are upon the face of the earth, shall shake at my presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down, the mountains representing large nations, and the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground, and I will call for a sword against him, meaning against Gog, Throughout all my mountains, saith Yahweh God, every man's sword shall be against his brother. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him and overflowing rain, and great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself, and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. There has been recent talk on the Christiania Forum in light of this um, Syrian and African invasion into Europe. Of the book by Jean Raspail entitled The Camp of the Saints. The book was published in the 1970s in English. And now, I've never read the book, but now I'm seeing that the only copy available in English was translated from French by a Jew. That figures. But Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech came first, several years before Camp of the Saints. Both works forebode the situation which we have today, and were evidently well ahead of their time. I've never read Restell's book, but the title indicates that he may have been clued in to the actual meaning of Revelation chapter 20. The French, however, the French were the first to cave into the Jewish variety of the ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity. So we reap what we sow. And it was Napoleon who forced the emancipation of Jews throughout Western Europe. So the word of Yahweh says that he, is putting these hooks into the jaws of all these aliens, and that he is bringing them here, so that he may ultimately destroy them in the sight of many nations, which are indeed the nations of Israel. In this manner, will the prophecy of Obadiah be fulfilled, where it says, For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though... They had not been. They're not going back to Libya or to Syria or to Turkey or to wherever hellhole they came from. They shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. It's telling when Christian identity pastors love to teach Obadiah 18, but they don't mess with Obadiah 15 and 16. Those men are frauds. And they shall kindle them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. So all the heathens shall be as though they had not been. They won't even exist any longer. And the house of Esau will be gone completely as well. So where we see the prophets, more ancient than Ezekiel, prophesying of the destruction of of the invaders on the mountains of Israel, we must not think that these things were fulfilled in ancient times. They certainly were not. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, and others with them who invaded ancient Israel were not destroyed in this manner in which Ezekiel describes. And Ezekiel lived after most of the Israelites were taken captive by the Assyrians. And Ezekiel's talking about the future, not of the past. So where Ezekiel gives this prophecy in his 38th chapter, and he says in verse 17, Thus saith Yahweh God, art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time, speaking of Gog, of the land of Magog, In old time, by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them, we still look for the fulfillment of these things which have not yet taken place. However, we see them transpiring before our eyes in the current so-called I don't don't like to call it immigration, but I I, I have to because that's the word that we all understand in the current so-called immigration dilemma. Therefore, we can also see unfolding today what was prophesied by one of those ancient prophets, by Joel. And understand that since the Assyrians were not destroyed at that time, that according to Ezekiel, who wrote as many as 50 years after Joel, Joel's prophecy actually applies now. In fact, chapter 3 of Joel proves that the prophet had not written until after the Assyrian captivity and invasions of Israel and Judah. So Joel can't be talking about that. He must be talking about some point far into his own future where he says, The word of Yahweh came to Joel, the son of Petuel. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Has this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Now Joel 3 proves that the Assyrian invasions had already happened. And this has not been. But he says, tell ye your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children another generation that which the pommel worm has left, the locust has eaten. And that which the locust has left, the canker worm has eaten. And that which the canker worm has left, The caterpillar has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, Judeo-Christian wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion. He has the cheek teeth of a great lion, He has laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He has made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. I am the vine, you are the branches. This is talking about the children of Israel. Today the pommel worms and the locusts have indeed left a little for the canker worms and the caterpillars. However, neither of any of them have actually finished with their consumption. Obadiah prophesies the destruction not only of the house of Esau, which are those same satanic Jews described as God in Ezekiel and as Satan in Revelation chapter 20, but Obadiah also prophesies the destruction of all the heathen who are eating and drinking upon Yahweh's holy mountain the mountains of Israel in Ezekiel. Joel chapter 2 promises deliverance from the enemy, but does not give many details except to say things such as, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of Yahweh come. Now, when I, used, when I interpreted similar language in my Revelation commentary several years ago, and I stand by it today, the darkening of the sun and the moon turning into blood actually reflects the failure of governments ordained by God on earth. And the Roman government was one of those beasts ordained by God. And the moon turning into blood, I interpret it as the administrations of men, which also failed when Rome fell. That entices me to mention something else, which has come up in the Christogynia Forum, but it was only raised by um, one member. Only one member was evidently fooled by this clown, John Hagee, and his so-called blood moons. Wherever we see it prophesied in scripture. of an omen that the moon turns to blood. Wherever in Scripture the moon is said to turn into blood, we see it accompanied with the prophecy that the sun turns to darkness or to sackcloth. So it says in Revelation chapter 6 that the sun became black. sackcloth of hair and the moon became his blood now this clown this Judeo-Christian tard he's just a turkey he's a very wealthy famous turkey but he's (laughs) no less a turkey so it says that the sun becomes black as sackcloth when the moon turns to blood and this clown's trying to promote this idea of blood moons as if they mean anything. But if the sun has not turned the sackcloth, then he's lying. There is nothing to any of these so-called blood moons. Christians should not be deceived. They shouldn't even be paying attention to devils such as John Hagee. It's unfortunate that anyone in identity Christianity pays one shred of attention to a turkey like this. The Hebrew language has a feature which is called parallelism, which is where the same thing is described twice in two different ways in consecutive phrases or sentences. There are many examples of this in both the Old and New Testaments, but there is a greater parallelism which is employed in the prophetic writings. For instance, where we see consecutive messianic prophecies in Isaiah, that does not mean that there is more than one Messiah. That simply means that aspects of the same Messiah are being prophesied in different discourses in different ways. So where it says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that Unto us a child is born. And then, in Isaiah chapter 11, it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. What we have is two different prophecies of the same Messiah. This is an example of parallelism in the prophets. It's a loose one, but (laughs) this parallelism which is a feature of Hebrew grammar and a feature of Hebrew poetic style, was also employed on this grander scale by the Hebrew prophets. Another example is in Ezekiel, where it laments the king of Tyre and the prince of Tyre. And a lot of people insist that that's two different people. And it's not two different people at all. It's a Hebrew parallelism. So, when we read Ezekiel chapter 39, we must consider that it is not a prophecy which is meant to describe something consecutive with the events prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 38. Rather, it is a parallelism, it is poetic prophecy describing the very same events that were described in chapter 38, but in a somewhat different manner. And when we put the two together, we can somewhat better understand the nature of what is being prophesied. So I'll read a little from Ezekiel 39. Therefore, thou son of man, Prophecy against Gog, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn thee back, and leave but the sixth part of thee, and will cause thee to come up from the north parts, and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. This is the hooks and the jaws of the hordes of Gog seen in Ezekiel chapter 38. And I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand, and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands, and the people that is with thee. And I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, saith Yahweh God, and I will send a fire on Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. This is the same language that we see describing the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19, which also prophecies the destruction of all of the enemies of Christ. Thereby we know that Ezekiel, and the Revelation are describing the very same thing. However, in the Revelation, these things do not occur until an event which Ezekiel doesn't really describe, which is the fall of mystery Babylon and the call to come out of her, my people. So we know that it is futile for us to attempt to come out of Babylon Until we hear the call and see the beast system fall, only then shall we be delivered. Until then, we have the advice imparted by Yahweh through Jeremiah the prophet from Jeremiah chapter 29. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses, that captivity that we're still in. Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished, and seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto Yahweh for it, for in the peace thereof shall you have peace. And of course, the word of Yahweh was, was for the good sakes and not for the bad. Continuing with Ezekiel chapter 39, So will I make my name holy, my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name any more. And the nation shall know that I am Yahweh, the holy one in Israel. Behold, it is come, and it is done, saith Yahweh God. We have a guarantee that this is going to happen. This is the day whereof I have spoken. And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows and the hand staves and the spears, and they shall burn them with fire seven years. And the prophetic time frame of years is ambiguous in Ezekiel because Ezekiel himself was told that a year A day was for a year in prophecy. So that they shall take no wood out of the field, neither cut down any out of the forests. For they shall burn the weapons with fire, and they shall spoil those that spoil them, and rob those that robbed them, saith Yahweh God. And likewise, in Revelation chapter 18, it says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. This is upon the fall of Babylon. That ye be not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her, even as she rewarded you, and double unto her according to her works. And the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. The people of God take their part in vengeance after Babylon falls. Until then, we have no political solution and neither should we want one. If we had a political solution, if we, by some weird stroke of providence, elected a good president or a good EU parliament that cared about Christian interests, we would only forestall our salvation. We have no political solution and we do not want one because Satan and all of his bastards cannot be fixed. Returning to Ezekiel chapter 39 from verse 11, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place there of graves in Israel the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea and it shall stop the noses of the passengers and there shall they bury Gog and all his multitude and they shall call it the valley of Hammond and seven months shall the house of Israel be burying of them, that they may cleanse the land. Yeah, all the people of the land shall bury them, and it shall be to them a renown, the day that I shall be glorified, saith Yahweh God, and they shall sever out, separate, men of continual employment, Passing through the land to bury with the passengers, those that remain upon the face of the earth, to cleanse it. After the end of seven months shall they search. That's the public works project to end all public works projects. The earlier reference to seven years may be disputed, but a day being a year in the prophecy of Ezekiel. This period of seven months may well describe. 210 years, it may take that long to clean up all of these alien hordes. And the passengers, I don't care how many caterpillars we have, New York's a sewer. So is Detroit, Chicago, and most of the cities in between. And the passengers that pass through the land. When any seeth a man's bone, then shall he set up a sign by it. Till the buriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog, and also the name of the city shall be Hamona, and they thus shall they cleanse the land. Continuing with Ezekiel chapter thirty nine, from verse seventeen. Thou shalt, and now son of man, thus saith Yahweh God, speak unto every feathered fowl, and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves, and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice, that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, the same thing that Obadiah was describing, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. Ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty, and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats, and of bullocks, all of them fatlings of Bashan. And ye shall eat fat till ye be full, and drink blood till ye be drunken, of my sacrifice which I have sacrificed for you. Thus shall ye be filled at my table, my table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, in Revelation chapter 19. Is all about this same thing. Thus shall ye be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men, and with all men of war, saith Yahweh God. Now, translation is too often a matter of interpretation. The interpretation of some words, which present us with multiple translations choices may forever be argued, but it's all a matter of one's Weltanschauung, one's worldview. If one's worldview is firmly grounded in scripture, there's a much better chance one may translate certain words correctly. And this is especially true in the Bible, in the Old Testament, of the Hebrew and Greek words for nation ethnos, goi, which may refer to a nation of one's own people or to a body of aliens, where quite often heathen is often more appropriate in prophecy, but not always. And many times where the King James has heathen, I would want to change it to nations, and many times the opposite is true. Continuing with Ezekiel chapter 39 from verse 21, And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, because all the heathen are gone, and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know, the house of Israel is many nations, shall know that I am Yahweh their God from that day forward, And the nations, meaning the nations of Israel, shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they trespassed against me. Therefore hid I my face from them, gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel. So Israel, until the hordes of Gog and Magog are destroyed, until the satanic hordes are destroyed, Israel is still in captivity. We are not yet regathered, although We should be in Christ. We are not yet regathered. Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. After that, they have borne their shame and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people to where they were sent in Ezekiel's time, and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am Yahweh their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen, but I have gathered them into their own land, and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face from them any more, For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith Yahweh God. And of course, the spirit of the first century, it was only a deposit, an earnest, as it said in the King James Version. And of course, a translation cannot be forced, which causes this prophecy to conflict with what we read in passages such as Obadiah 15 and 16. Or in Jeremiah chapter 30, where the children of Israel are told, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, which is what we expect with this Ezekiel 38 and 39 event, yet will I not make a full end of thee but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. And this promise is repeated in Jeremiah chapter 46. So we see that after Babylon falls, whatever the cause of that may be, and after the call of the people, the call by God to the people to reward her even as she rewarded you, we see that The people are informed as to what had happened to them. This is where we see a similar call prophesied in Micah, to arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. This is the purpose and culmination of what we call Christian identity. The truth is not going to magically drop out of heaven delivered by a winged angel inscribed on golden tablets. That's not the way it happens. The Word of Yahweh has promised an Elijah ministry in which he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. These are the last words of the Old Testament. This is what Christ says must happen before he returns, and that is not a coincidence. Neither do these words portend a literal Elijah, but rather a message in the same spirit that Elijah had. We have, we meaning the children of Israel, if indeed we are all children of Israel, we have a promise of salvation. But we also have a promise that all of the aliens brought here are indeed going to be exterminated as a matter of the will of our God. When that time comes, the laws of man shall not be able to interfere or to make reparations for the heathen, the laws of man, will not be able to defend the hordes of Gog and Magog, the armies of Satan, the flood of the serpent. It is our challenge to carry this message in spite of whether it is accepted by anyone before Babylon falls. Anyone who accepts this marriage I'm sorry, anyone who accepts this message is basically a designated safeguardian of this message until the time comes when all of this when all of our people should hear it and then they will certainly accept it, as it is said in Ezekiel chapter thirty nine. We need to maintain the truth so that once Babylon does fall, then our brethren will accept this message. Or, if they refuse to come out of Babylon, they shall indeed suffer her same punishments. As it says in Revelation chapter 18, and we see in the parables of Christ that five virgins just don't get it. I had spoken earlier of using certain political or social issues as vehicles for addressing greater problems in an attempt to convey truths which transcend those singular issues. This is our challenge, and the so-called immigration problem. While we lament what's happening, we should understand our deliverance and use it as one avenue that we can use to present our message to our kindred. Until the call comes, many of our kindred shall still reject this message. But those who do see that white Christian lands are being flooded with aliens to our demise are indeed fertile ground in which to plant the seeds of truth. As Paul had said, he planted and Apollos watered, but it is Yahweh that makes the body to grow. And this leads me to discuss one more topic, which I had actually promised to get to last week, and after two and a half hours, just wasn't able to do it. So here I am this week. Identity Christians who are persuaded that they understand all of these things and more, which our perspective has to offer, should not accept the truths of God and vaunt themselves over their brethren or imagine themselves to be better than their brethren. It simply isn't so. It is easy to think of oneself as being set above, or is being better than, the ignorant and blind masses. However, Yahweh God has not blessed us for that reason. Rather, the scripture says that to whom much is given, much shall be required. Therefore, if one is persuaded to have the truth of God behind scripture and history, One has been burdened by God with a greater responsibility. From Luke chapter 12, from verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find doing so. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and the maidens, and to eat and to drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looks not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, who knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of many stripes, those people who are blind and ignorant and happy in the world, if you will, shall be beaten with few stripes, for unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required, and to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask, the more, knowing this message and, and understanding the truth of Scripture, therefore gives one a greater responsibility. I'm going to read from an email message I received two weeks ago. The email message that, in conjunction with this, I wanted to read last week and did not have time. I actually had it slated and realizing that, I'd, uh, that I had already spoken for two and a half hours. Here we are this week. I'm not going to divulge the name of the person who sent me this email, and I will cut out some of the material which is of a personal nature, and actually I'm not even going to get through the entire email For our purposes here, I will simply call him Tommy, since that is an old nickname for Brits, especially for soldiers, which was even used by Kipling. And after Tommy gives us a brief introduction, he says, I can send you pictures to prove my apparent ethnicity. However, although I agree with all the premises of your arguments, I cannot agree to the extent that you think that whites today are atomites, and he's addressing me. Please don't discard this email yet. I'm not that impatient. In fact, I think most whites today are treacherous and cunning snakes who readily accept the foreigner into their country because there is little difference between them in that both are mixed species bipeds, and I believe that most whites today are the seed of Cain and and, um, Tommy is basically treating DNA in a rather odd manner, and I won't get into all of the details of that. First, I would respond by saying that many whites are the seed of Cain, no doubt. But who is really white is another matter entirely. Many people are considered white by society. That doesn't really mean that they're white. Even Arabs, who are certainly the seat of Cain, and these Turks, and and other um, people from the mixed race margins of Europe, who are certainly not white, are considered white. When you look at a United States census form, or United States crime statistics, or even if you ask the average American, these Sandnagers, these Syrians coming into America, being brought here those by those hooks in their jaws, being brought here and settled in American towns, they appear white right to many people. If you don't understand what an Arab is, and what a white person really is, and what an Arab historically looks like, and that these people are actually mixed, some shade of gray in between, most ignorant Americans are probably going to accept these Arabs as just another flavor of white person. But that doesn't make them white. The fact that um, there are a lot of crypto-conversos among us, not only in the form of Jews, but of all the nations where the Jews have infiltrated. That is the parable of the weed and the tares, understood to its fullest extent, that even a lot of so-called Christians are really tares a really of part Jewish ancestry or some other mixed ancestry. But Tommy and I shall differ even more significantly than this. And I think Tommy really goes off the rail in his assessment of his own kindred. He says, growing up, I always knew I was different and far superior to those around me who appeared to be degenerates in ability and behavior. I don't I didn't know why it was them, the droves, and me, like night and day. And I would say to Tommy that intelligence and understanding are gifts from God. There are many people, most white people of average intelligence have IQs perhaps between 90 and 110 by the way that IQs are measured. And few white people have IQs that are 130, 140, 150, and above. But that's a gift from God. And simply because God may have gifted you in that manner does not mean that you should despise your brethren. So you lack love in spite of your gift. And for that you are in danger of being judged more harshly. This is the entire meaning which underlies Paul's illustration of the parts of the body of Christ and the differing functions of each part in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that the eye should not despise the hand and the hand should not despise the foot. And Paul follows that same illustration by his exhortation to love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And that is not a mistake that Paul did that. And Tommy says, All my adult life I have been slandered and rejected from the society and prevented from obtaining any position of relative comfort and influence where I can have a family and decent life of my own commensurate with my abilities. And I understand more than anybody because I've worked in government bureaucracy and in corporate management in my past life. And I understand that people who are intelligent and gifted are actually feared by their less intelligent and less gifted superiors and, and coworkers, and will be marginalized and will not be promoted and will not be offered better jobs for that reason. Because men who are in positions of authority, more often than not, not all the time, but more often than not, and especially in government bureaucracy, are in fear of people below them who are more intelligent than them. And that dynamic, plus the fact that white males are purposely being marginalized today, is why Tommy has had these problems all of his adult life. But he's assigning the problem to the wrong reasons. And he says, I avoid most social situations because I am quite openly scorned and ignored for no apparent reason. Well the apostles warned us that if we were to uphold Christian values, that this would happen to us. Today I feel completely disconnected from those around me who are corrupt self promoters and useless fools, serving themselves and mystery Babylon. I have come to the conclusion when speaking to ordinary people that every word is a lie to deny your royal nature and place these obstacles in your way to oppress you and put you at a disadvantage and see why they are called the false accuser and spoiler. And this is not because these people are necessarily Canaanites. This is the love of money. the emulation of the world and the following of the things of the flesh, whereby most white people are caught up in sin, where at one time in white society, a man would rise to the top if he had the intelligence and the tools by which to supply the community with what was needed in a given situation and where a man derived his personal worth from what he had to offer his community, there was a time when the intelligent and the strong would rise to the top. That's not so today. Today, the world is under the control of the adversaries of our God, and intelligent or strong or able white men are usually diminished and kept down on purpose. And, and that's evident in, in our society in many ways. But that does not make our fellow white people devils because they go along with this system set up by the Jew out of the love of money and the emulation of the world and the pursuit of the things of flesh. The same thing was done by the Israelites of old. And the evidence is recorded all throughout the historical and prophetic books of Scripture that does not make them devils because they sin or because their value systems were not the value systems of God. As Paul himself quotes from the Psalms in Romans chapter 3, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, and that includes Tommy. And that includes me. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. This is why we, we we require the mercy of God in order to assure our salvation. Without His mercy, we have no salvation. Their throat is an open sepulchre with their tongues they have used to see the poison of asps is under their lips. Our people were told that if you allow the Canaanite among you, just like we had the Jews among us today, that we would learn the ways of the Canaanite. So our people today act like Jews. And the values... In the standards, the standards of our society are the values of the Jews. They're not the values of the Aryan. So, of course, any upright Aryan male who cares about the laws of this God and the ways of this God are not going to get along in the society. That's just the way it is. It's back to the court clerk. The court clerk wants to work for Caesar, she has to uphold the desires of Caesar. She cannot uphold the laws of God working for Caesar. Tommy said, also, I had a Holy Spirit born-again experience twice in my life that changed me from a carnal perspective. And as you were saying in your Galatians series, that this is what happens when hearing the gospel. Yes, I believe it is what happens. When we hear and accept the gospel of Christ, we start to inquire into his word and his law and seek to conform ourselves to it. And Tommy says, twice, because i blasphemed the Spirit and it left me. The first time around, and I return to my carnal nature, I have come across Adamites on rare occasions in passing, and once in a romantic relationship that was interfered with by snakes, and I have partially reconciled, that are not broken vessels. He had come across Adamites on rare occasions that are not broken vessels, and they are physically and mentally superior to their ter- siblings and fathers and mothers, as I am to mine. He only met other intelligent men. That's all he meant. Night and day again. The last of the wheat harvest is taken out from among the predominant tares because the genetic blueprint is still present, albeit diluted down within the white nations. But make no mistakes, whites themselves, by and large, are all tares, just like the early Jews. And that's not true, An Adamic child of God cannot have tares for parents. As Christ himself had said in Matthew chapter 7, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? And then he said, even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. However, as Paul had also explained, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. With that, we should understand that merely being in the state of sin does not make one a tear. Tommy himself admitted, blaspheming the spirit, and it left him. And that made him basically just like his brethren, in a state of sin. But it didn't make him a tear. Otherwise, the spirit could never be with him in the first place. His brethren are still in a state of sin, that Tommy felt when he blasphemed the spirit. He shouldn't blame his brethren or imagine them to be cares or despise his brethren because they do not have the same consciousness of these things that he does. He has a gift, a higher awareness, an awakening he should use it properly and love his brethren, which is what Christians are commanded to do. They're not commanded to love their brethren who are believers, they're commanded to love their brethren, even when they sin. That is why the children of Israel require mercy in Christ. Tares have no mercy at all. All have sinned, yet all are not tares. And he says, only Jesus knew them apart. Physiologically, in my opinion, we live longer, have a larger cephalic index, and have longer necks and broad shoulders with an athletic physique. And, and you know, David in the Psalms had lamented the fact that the wicked lived longer and prospered. Sometimes Tommy's statements are true, but not all the time. And originally the differences between wheat and tares may have been more striking, but originally was 5,000 years ago. The tares have sufficient adamic blood to be able to fool most, if not all, of the wheat. That is the way it is, and we are told it would be that way until the fulfillment. That is why the gospel of God alone can divide us. But first, the wheat must be called to hear the true gospel, and that has not yet happened on any large scale. Most of our people, even if they're Judeo-Christians, have never heard the true gospel of Christ. Ostensibly, the scripture says that the people shall not receive the call until Babylon falls to come out of her. And even then, many of them will choose not to come out of her and will thereby suffer her punishment. That does not make them cares. That only makes them fools. As Paul says elsewhere in another context, deliver sinners unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We can be sinners. We can be apostates. We're still children of God that have the spirit of God. And the spirit of God cannot inhabit bastards, broken cisterns, He goes on to talk about physiognomy. Most whites have narrow foreheads like Negroes, proving they are tares. Well, skull shape is actually a better determinant of race than skin color or eye color. And he says they are physically degenerate or weaklings. He speaks about a phenomenon in biology called anisogamy where the certain versions of a species adopt adopts a more juvenile adult appearance than a fully developed one. And he believes that tares are missing genetic information, so they are stupid. Like children, you can clearly see that they are physically underdeveloped, overall and in brain capacity. They are logical people also, whereas tares are illogical, prone to circular arguments. And he says... Well, stupid. First, there is a total lack of proper education and discipline in our society. And even in the Proverbs, men are warned about being foolish or slothful. So it is evident that these traits have always been a problem of our people. But it is also evident that such things as processed foods, poisons within vaccines, chemicals in our water, and other environmental toxins and other dietary toxins affect our physical and mental health. However, if in ancient Israel there were not foolish and slothful people who were weak, then it is hard to imagine that they would be addressed with such terms. From Proverbs chapter 12, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkens unto counsel is wise. A fool's wrath is presently known, but a prudent man covers shame. He that speaks truth showed forth righteousness, but a false witness deceived. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the hearts of fools proclaim foolishness. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful, shall be under tribute. The righteous is more excellent than his neighbor, which is a word meaning one of the same flock, but the way of the wicked seduces them. The slothful man roasts not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. There were foolish and stupid men and diligent and intelligent men among the weed from the beginning. But Tommy says, Anyone who is stupid is not an atomite. Anyone who is not born again is not an atomite. And Tommy is self righteous, he is quite conceited. There were stupid Adamites all throughout history and scripture. It is easy for us to see such stupidity in hindsight. I don't think there's a man alive who could say that he was never stupid. Committing any sin can be considered stupid. Tommy admits blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which he claimed to have, twice. Not once, twice. So Tommy was at one time stuck on stupid. And the apostle John tells us that the man who claims not to have sinned attempts to make God a liar, and that is stupid. Therefore we are all convicted of stupidity of one degree or another. The first Adam was stupid. He admits his own stupidity in Genesis chapter 3 verse 12, where he said, "The woman Who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. If the first Adam was stupid, we can all be stupid. Nobody is born again. There's no such thing, Tommy, as born again. We are either born from above, being children of Adam, And children of God, or we are born from below, meaning that we were created in rebellion and sin, contrary to God's law. Then, where cares? One is either a son or a bastard, but there is no such thing in God's law as sons who are bastards or bastards who are sons. Bastards, whom men claim to be sons, were born outside of God's law. And Tommy says that if I do not discern more carefully between the spots in my feasts, then I am allowing scatterers in. And I would say, yes, I agree. And he says, simply saying you are white or non-Jewish, Negro, Hispanic is not enough of at all. And of course, it's not enough by itself, but as Christ himself had taught us, it is the gospel of God that divides the wheat and the tares. The reasoning of man is destined to fail. So far as I know, there are no members of the Christiania Forum who would deny that Jesus is the Christ, and therefore... Ostensibly being white, ostensibly, they are all acceptable until they themselves prove otherwise by rejecting the gospel. This is only one reason why the forum does indeed have several hundred former members. The Christogenia Forum has probably had seven or eight hundred members over the course of the last six years. There are only about a hundred active members because I delete or deactivate all inactive accounts as I get around to it after 12 or 18 or sometimes 24 months. That's my habit, not to let inactive accounts linger. Perhaps only half of the hundred on there now, are actually active. I'd rather keep a small group of active people who are truly interested in the message, Gideon's 300, than have 30,000. So there's a constant and natural vetting process. And not everybody that left our forum is a tear. I would never claim that. A lot of them just stop participating and they're otherwise good people. A lot of them stop participating and are still in contact with me. They just don't really like participating in the forum environment. Forums aren't for everyone. So that's the way it is. But it's Christ. When you encounter another man who is ostensibly white, it's Christ. It's the gospel of Christ that it has to be the final determinant. That's the way it has to be. Tommy says, only those who can say that the world despises them and that they can show or admit to real persecution in their lives, socially and or institutionally, are Adamites and those with the Holy Spirit. If you live each day uncomfortably being aware of the enmity between the seed lines and being subject to random displays of abuse and violence, then you are an atomite. If you don't get on with most people and foreigners, then you are an atomite. And this is not true, Tommy. While we are certain that if we bear the truth, we are persecuted. And with that, we are actually blessed. Not all of us have been blessed with the truth, with that awakening to that two-seed line message, to that awakening that there are good people and that will always be good and evil people that will always be evil in the world. Not all of us are blessed with that. Not all of us are blessed with the knowledge that these other races are not from God. Most people are trained from birth that they are, that they're just like us. And their natural instincts, and this is proven many times, their natural instincts are suppressed because of peer pressure and because of their education. So this is not true, Tommy. The scriptures often prove that the children of Israel will be saved in spite of themselves and not on account of themselves so that the glory belongs to God and not to man. That's part of the message of those chapters in Ezekiel which we just read. Even of the seven churches of the Revelation, Some of those churches were not criticized, and only some of those churches were to be persecuted. Christ even said under the church at Smyrna that some of the people would be imprisoned. Then on the other hand, in Ezekiel chapter 38, the people of God are described as dwelling in safety until they are overwhelmed by the alien floods. So the scripture does not say that all Israelites will be persecuted. Those who bear the truth of God are usually persecuted and may have a greater responsibility, but that is a separate matter entirely from determining who is of Adam and who is not. most Adamic people are in that state of sin that you yourself have admitted being in out of your own stupidity blaspheming the Holy Spirit, in your words. Tommy says, I have a huge respect for your work, but there is no uninterrupted line of pure whites going back to the Exodus, evident in the European nations, especially given the level of persecution, the anointed experience, and lack of knowledge. As Jesus said that, you were taken out of the world. In my view, the remnant has always been very small, except when it was a nation as Israel. Then the genetic stock was multiplied so it could withstand the ages. And Tommy's really got this screwed up. Europeans, because they're Christian nations, have indeed been persecuted in all of the wars engineered by the Jews for many hundreds of years now. Even if they don't understand that it's because They were, they were, they aren't now. It's because they were Christians that they were persecuted. Even if they don't understand that, that certainly is the reason for their persecution. That is the punishment of God against them for their sin. And Tommy dismisses any cognizance of that. That's what the revelation is all about. Yahshua said to his apostles that they were taken out of the world, but Tommy is taking that out of context. The children of Israel were certainly chosen out of the world, out of the entire Adamic race. But they remain in the world, and their remaining is a part of the promise of preservation so that the kingdom of Yahweh shall eventually be established in the world. The apostle Peter, one of those people Christ told was taken out of the world, in 1 Peter chapter 5, admonished his readers to be sober, be vigilant, Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So Tommy's taking that line where Christ had said... 30 years before Peter wrote that epistle, I have chosen you out of the world. He's taken that out of context. Because Peter is telling his readers 30 years later that their brethren are in the world and that those afflictions are accomplished in them whether they're cognizant of it or not, is immaterial. If there was no uninterrupted line of white since the Exodus, then the scripture is a lie, and we should throw our Bibles in the trash. Tommy is evidently poisoned with Jewish propaganda concerning history and genetics. Paul quotes Elijah in chapter 11 of the Epistle to the Romans, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Talking about those pure Israelites that Tommy claimed were in the ancient kingdom. But what says the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Elijah was speaking of Israelites, not of tares. And he was speaking of Israelites, as Paul quotes, that were as the sand of the sea, although the number of the children of Israel were as the sand of the sea, a remnant would be saved. And that's where he talks about this message to Elijah that all of the children of Israel had done all of these things, thrown down the altars of Yahweh, killed the prophets. And there were plenty of children of Israel who were enlisting with the agitators and siding with the tares and these things. There were 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to bow. The rest of Israel did bow the knee, to the image of Baal. Even though they were pure Israelites. Elijah was speaking of Israelites. The 7,000 were not the remnant of Israel. They were only the remnant of Israel, who, the remainder of the Israelites, who had not bent a knee to Baal. Paul is using that in Romans, not in reference to the totality of Israel, but to those among his kinsmen, his kinsmen, as he calls them, according to the flesh in Judea, who were still faithful to God, they had not bent the knee to bow, but who had not yet accepted the gospel of Christ. So it is today that while the number of Israel is indeed as the sand of the sea, there is only a small remnant among them who do not worship the beast. But the scripture says that all of the seed of Israel shall be saved, and not merely all perceptibly good people according to Tommy's standards. And he says that the woman is not Europeans, but the hidden Adamic blueprint that all non-Adamic phenotypes are programmed to destroy when it reappears in any pure individual. Tommy's confusing racial consciousness and a willingness to be obedient to God with the Adamic phenotype, the... Entire white race in the world today, and throughout history, has never had that same consciousness. In the days of um, in the days of, the, of of the conquest, in Numbers chapter twenty-five, out of all the men of Israel who were joining themselves to the daughters of Moab, which is basically what we have again today. Only Phineas rose up to execute God's law, and he was rewarded for it. Tommy, not everybody that joins themselves to the world is a tear. You have a serious problem in despising your brethren. We who have been blessed with this awakening and this racial consciousness and the truth of the gospel of God... Must not despise our brethren: With that I'm going to end, because I'd only be repeating myself to answer the rest of Tommy's paper. He goes on to say that um) uh, Jews are not the the enemy with a capital T. Jews are only the visible and organized, ethnically criminal portion of the enemy. Well, that's true. All non-whites are the enemy. All bastards are the enemy. But we must focus on the active and visible portions of the enemy, which even he characterized as the Jews. They who deny the Christ, they are the Antichrist, and the Jews are the principal among them. The Jews are the enemy, but all other races, those heathens eating and drinking on the mountains of Israel, they are the enemy as well. We must focus upon all those who oppose Christ and demonstrate their evil for the sake of our brethren. We must balance our Christian identity teachings to both sides of the seed line, not only to the historic struggles between them and to what the enemies are doing to us, but to what we are doing as well, to where we fail so that we can improve ourselves. I'm going to address the rest of Tommy's letter in pieces, perhaps on the Christogania forum or or in, in portions of my upcoming podcasts on the, on, the, on, on the writings of Paul where I have opportunity. The scriptural truth is this, and perhaps we can elaborate on it further as we continue through the epistles of Paul. Blindness, most of our people, most Adamic people, are still in a state of blindness. And blindness is punishment from Yahweh for disobedience to his law. And if our people in a state of blindness are still being punished, we should not despise them for their being punished, because we too have been sinners, and we too still sin at times. The Adamic race, and the children of Israel especially, have always been a stubborn and a stiff-necked people, seeking worldly pleasures rather than the will of God. For that, God gave most of them up, but promised to save all of the children of Israel because of his promise to Abraham. That is the entire Bible story in a nutshell. Most of those children of Israel, most of our own people are still in blindness, even though they're promised salvation. As Paul says, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the nations arrives. And therefore, blindness and sin are not a litmus test for race. If blindness and sin were a litmus test for race, Over the events of the 35 centuries since the Exodus, none of us would be worthy for the kingdom of heaven, and none of us would be alive today. As for we who are awake, we have an obligation to perpetuate the truth of God in spite of our brethren. But their ignorance does not make them tares. And our awakened state gives us a burden of responsibility, but not a license to despise those of us who still slumber. Those who are awake are fortunate. We're blessed. But as Solomon himself had said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, for in much wisdom is grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. We who are awake can look at our current world situation, the world situation of our race, and we have that sorrow. There is no doubt. In much wisdom there is grief. That's the way it is. That's the burden of God. That's the patience and faith of the saints. So instead of despising our brethren, we should follow Paul's model of prayer, where in Romans chapter 9, he prayed for his kinsmen according to the flesh, and he prayed that they would come to the same awakening the call to obedience in Christ. And those who didn't awaken were destroyed in the fall of Jerusalem by the Romans and given over to the bad fates to become a reproach and a curse and a taunt and a proverb in all the lands where they were sent. We don't despise our brethren we don't imagine them to be cares simply because they don't open their eyes to the truth and to Christ. And we don't look down upon them if we are blessed with higher intelligence and higher awareness. Those things are all gifts from God. We, When we have gifts from God, it is required that we are good stewards of those gifts and dispense of them at the proper moments. So we entice our brethren into repentance so that they, too, can be awakened. And we pray for them, but we don't despise them because that exhibits a lack of love for our brother. With that, we will close. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, I haven't yet decided what I should do. I will by morning. Next Friday, the prophecy of Haggai. And after that, we will get back to the epistles of Paul. The next Christoginian Europe with Stan Longshank shall be on September 27th. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.